Are you hesitating to take the next step in your e-commerce journey? Founder Plus has you covered with proven frameworks tailored to your business needs for fast results, a supportive community of over 30,000 like-minded entrepreneurs and weekly live mentorship sessions. Founder Plus is your key to success. Try Founder Plus today for just $1 for seven days and start building your dream business with confidence. You can visit founder.com forward slash start dollar trial or click the link in the description to claim your trial. This is episode number 166 with Holly Lou of the Founder Podcast. What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty human. Who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating, fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. Now. now, the Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help. If you want to learn from the most successful founders on the planet, you are in the right place. Branson, Mark Cuban, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, Seth, Ghost, Steve Case, Gary V, Sophia Amoroso, Robert Corcoran, Damon John. Learn from the greatest minds in business today with interviews hosted by Nathan Chan. This is not your average entrepreneur podcast. The Founder Podcast. Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Before we start today's episode, I just want to let you know that our goal at Founder is to help entrepreneurs succeed however we can by giving away high quality content in the form of interviews, blog posts, podcasts, YouTube videos, you name it. We put out so much content to help you. And another interesting project that we're working on right now is partnering with world-class founders like Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills like negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free trainings with founders like this, which is 100% free, just go to founder.com forward slash free. Okay, so now let's talk about today's episode. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Founder Podcast. My name is Nathan Chan and I am the host of the Founder Podcast and also the CEO and publisher of Founder Magazine, also founder.com. Hope you're all having an awesome day wherever you are around the world. It's currently 2.30 a.m. for me and I am getting my grind on, hustling it out Gary V style. Um, oh, geez, this is just one that I'm actually procrastinating with recording these videos. I'm working super hard right now, guys. I'm creating so much content. It's insane. And we're only getting warmed up. Um, yeah, we actually need to hire more people. So, uh, yeah, if you know anyone that might be a good fit or you'd love to join us, uh, and you are in Melbourne, I want to be very, very clear. We are looking only to build out the team in Melbourne at the moment. Uh, but uh, if you are in Melbourne and you would like to join us and uh, we're on a mission to building a household name entrepreneurial brand that impacts the lives of tens of millions of founders and entrepreneurs on a weekly basis. Uh, if that does sound interesting to you, if you would like to learn and join our team, we are looking for a few different roles, copywriter, designer, CRO person in Melbourne. Uh, so yeah, we'd love, we've got a killer team. We're doing some really game-changing stuff. It's really disrupting. And, uh, you know, people said that magazines are a dying trade. We're trying to, we're trying to challenge people on that. We're doing all right. So I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to listen. And, uh, let's talk about today's guests. Her name's Holly Lou, an incredible founder. 
and uh, she's the founder of a company, a co-founder of a company called Kabam, and uh, they're a gaming company, which is really interesting. Haven't interviewed anyone that's uh, disrupted the gaming industry. But uh, Holly's out of, uh, she comes out of Silicon Valley, and uh, we met in person. Uh, uh, my friend Greta uh, introduced me to her. Incredible founder, built a billion-dollar company, and uh, yeah, really, really inspiring founder. Uh, yeah, there's a lot to learn. Um, she has a totally different mindset, just seems to be, the guys in San Fran, they seem to have a really different mindset, and you'll see what I mean when you listen to this. And we talk about everything growth, scaling, hiring, product. She comes from a product, dev, uh, product development, product manager background. So a lot of gold here. I know you guys are going to love this one. Uh, Holly's a really, really smart person. She has a lot of great experiences and lessons to share. And uh, if you guys are enjoying this, please do take the time to leave us a review on iTunes. Helps us big time. And also, please do share this with your friends and make sure you subscribe. The more you subscribe, you don't miss an episode. All right, guys, that's it from me. Now let's jump into the show. All right, so the first question that I ask everyone that comes on is, uh, how did you get your job? <laughs> or find my career? Um, so let's see. Uh, I don't know. I think being an entrepreneur and being a founder is not necessarily something you get. Uh, I, I always think it's like one of the easiest things to do. You don't go to school for it. There's no certificate. There's nobody that's going to dub you. You just kind of go and do it. And it's one of the easiest things to get into, but one of the hardest things to be successful, if you really think about it in terms of an entrepreneur. Um, eventually, you know, when you start running a company, uh, hopefully your, your success, you, you get to some level of success that, um, you know, there's other people that come on board and start building their company. At that point, I think being an entrepreneur, it means to be super flexible, yet also, um, being very kind of aligned to some visions and values to be loyal to them and committed to them. Um, so I, I've actually worn many hats at our company. We ran for, or I was there for about 10 years from the beginning until exit. And um, I started doing, I was, I was their first designer for quite some time, led the design. And then as it got bigger, we needed some founder talent to go run people um, in the HR team. So the CEO asked me to go and run that. And as a result, I was able to help grow the culture, even grow the people over 500% in terms of employee growth um, and open up over six offices around the world. So um, I don't think I would have gotten that opportunity if I was very much uh, kind of thinking about what it was to be a founder and entrepreneur in terms of a job and finding it, if you will. But my background has very much been in the design field, and uh, I had a job and a career working as a designer, and finding that um, was very interesting and uh, a journey in and of itself um, in terms of not only just finding the area that I was interested in. I initially started in accounting of all places. Oh, wow. Found out very, I know, found out very quickly I was not an accountant, uh, not that we not that that's a terrible profession at all. It just wasn't something that I was made to do. And um, I ended up um, going back to school. And that's when I learned about human computing interaction, uh, which is many people call product design. And that's when I just fell in love. I love uh, merging technology with humans and seeing how we interacted. It's very much as 
it's very much what tech entrepreneur does. Um, oftentimes people ask me what is the most difficult thing about our journey in terms of tech entrepreneurship. And I think it's always changing people's behaviors, their minds and their feelings. Um, and that could be from employees within as well as um, folks who are not, who are using your product. It is very hard to change user behavior. Um, but that's, that's something that I was very fascinated with um, in, in, in design was how could I help people achieve certain things that they didn't even know that either they wanted or made their life a lot easier. Um, and that's kind of how I ended up finding, I found some jobs in product design, oftentimes through job boards or networking. Um, but once we decided, once I decided to become an entrepreneur, I think that was just very different. I didn't necessarily think as much about jobs and much more about caretaking the business and growing the business and what, what did it take? So that's how, that's probably how I ended up wearing many hats and doing many different jobs. <laughs> I see. So Kabam is, is the first company that you founded or did you do something before it? No, this is the first company I founded. it. Uh, I founded with three other co-founders. Um, so there was four of us total and we started in about 2006 uh, Kabam is known as a mobile gaming company today, but we didn't quite start out that way. We started out doing corporate social networking. Um, so it was very different. It was, um, what we call a B2B, uh, business. And I, we were four folks from the consumer. We were young kids. Many of us honestly had never managed a person in our life. We were first time founders. It was surprising anybody was going to give us money, but somebody did and they took a chance on us. And um, we failed horribly our first our first foray into corporate social networking. But from that, we learned a lot and we had to learn very quickly. Um, the main thing we learned that after seven months and three product iterations, we only had about 1400 users. And that was after we were begging our friends and family to sign up. I guess some people would call it spamming your friends and asking them to send it to their friends. And it just wasn't growing. And at that time, Facebook was um, launching their product, their their platform, the developer platform, and that really grew very quickly for many other app developers. And I think that's when we realized that instead of bringing the users to where you are, maybe we were better off going to where the users were. So that's when uh, we iterated into or pivoted is probably a much stronger word into building fan communities for Facebook fan communities on Facebook for TV shows and sports teams. Um, so if you were a fan of a TV show like Grey's Anatomy, you could come into our app, you can find other fans, you can list quotes on your profile page. And we grew that business to over 60 million users. And um, wow. it was one of the largest, yeah, it was one of the largest fan communities on Facebook. So that when uh, ABC, it was a big uh, television network in the US wanted to distribute video on Facebook, they actually didn't call it Facebook, they called us up because they said, you know what, we want our fans to be watching this. You guys are the ones that have the largest fan base. Um, but what unfortunately happened for us, we're still not even to the gaming company part of it and how we got into gaming is that unfortunately uh, in the U.S. we had a big mortgage crisis, which turned into a big financial crisis. And a lot of our, a lot of companies whose business models like ourselves was ad supported, the money just dried up overnight. Like people were pulling back money. Um, for us, we lost like a $3 million contract within days. Um, so we were really looking 
kind of, we're just really seeing, wow, this is not much left um, in terms of runway. And we decided, you know, like, what should we do? We could return the money. We could try to find a job in this horrible climate. Um, But we decided to, we were looking around and we realized there was a lot of market opportunity for companies that were building games and particularly games on Facebook, people like Zynga. Um, They were, they were just killing it with with Farmville. So the first thing that we looked at, and I noticed this with almost every kind of pivot that we made is we looked a lot at what we call market opportunity. I think that's from the first lesson that we learned is, you know, where, where are the people, what is something that is growing financially or, um, people wise. And Zynga was almost recession proof. The second thing we usually look at is what we call our core competencies. So us as a team, we're about 30 people, but, We've had a, we grew up with the Facebook platform building on it and really building successful applications. So we had almost a hundred years of Facebook app development experience. Uh, we felt confident about building apps. And then finally, we, we definitely looked at our passion points, you know, and um, the CEO was incredibly passionate about games. He just wasn't passionate about what was currently on Facebook. And so he said, you know what, what if we were going to build a game that was much, you know, deeper than this? deeper than what was offered by Farmville. And that's when we came out with our first game called Kings of Camelot. And that was our flagship product. Um, I led the design on that. And that really kind of put basically our temple into games and started our foray into games. That that franchise has grossed over $250 million alone. Um, and for us, that's been able to fund the rest of the company in many ways. And that's how we got our kind of uh, hooks into gaming, if you will. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> before we move on to the story, cause this is really fascinating. Um, what did, what, how did you, uh, keep your investors happy? What did they say when you, when you guys pivoted? Sure. That's a very good question. Um, investors are definitely one of our, our big kind of shareholders. So our first pivot from corporate social network into fan communities, uh, it was really funny uh, because we were left with the decision of returning the money, what little runway we had, or maybe going into Facebook. And I remember when our CEO came back, he said, I said, so what did our investors say? Because there was only one at the time on the board. And he goes, yeah, she said, do it, go to where the users are. And I think that really kind of solidified our DNA as kind of, you know, in terms of like the, the marketing piece. And I think early on, um, that was incredibly helpful. I, I talked to our investor and she always says, well, I feel like my role is to hold, I go, you must've thought we were so silly. Like why, why would we keep on working on this thing when there could be something over there? And she said, well, I feel like my job is just to hold, is to hold a mirror to, to the entrepreneur and so that they can they can see where it's going. I think um, as we kept moving towards getting into uh, later pivots, I think the first thing is that you have to be really honest with your board in many ways um, in terms of like, look, this is where we're seeing the business going. If we were, if you've already made that decision, particularly as a CEO, um, you have to be honest and then you have to be 100% committed because you're going to have to sell the pivot to the CEO. I mean, sorry, to the board. Uh, to the employees, to your direct reports. So you have to be like 100% committed to it and then so committed that you have to sell even when you're like, I just don't know. And I think that's probably one of the hardest things as a CEO out there. Um, it's, it's, I don't envy, it's a tough job. Um, so that's the first thing I think you have to be honest. And then the second thing is you really have to paint the vision. 
for what you see in the marketplace or where the new direction is going. It's not, maybe not marketplace for us. We were very anchored on market opportunity and kind of sell them on like, Hey, this is where I think we should be going into. This is the plan. This is why I think we are the best ones to be doing. It's almost like you're pitching all over again, but not really, but this is where I think we can go and look at how much opportunity there is over here. And this, this opportunity is dying. And that's how it kind of got sold to us, even as employees and to the employees. So everybody's on the same page. And so you can make that shift together a lot, a lot easier. Mm, I see. So what happened next? Um, after kind of the pivots or, um, yeah. So after, like you got, you had your first successful yeah, so, game. Like how, how did you guys even sure. like, like work out, like how, how to build an awesome game that people love? <laughs> Yeah. So, um, I think the one thing that was super unique about us, there was a couple of features that was incredibly unique when it comes to games on Facebook. It was the first time that Facebook people could talk to people outside of their friend circle. So you weren't stuck just like gifting a purple cow to your friends and family. The second thing is, uh, so because we had what we call real time chat. So you were able to connect with people who were loved games, but maybe weren't in your friend circle. So in many ways, it became a little bit of a discovery platform for people. And we really ended up anchoring a lot of our um, competitive advantage of being social and learning about community and kind of how to do community, right? Um, so people would basically, uh, people become lifelong friends from our games and people have met and married on our games. So people are actually building like real live relationships here. Um, as we kind of move forward, what we, what we started thinking is like, can we replicate this success? So we started seeing like, how can we replicate the success and how do we do it faster? I think we learned a lot from that. I think we learned that you can't just, I think humans know, um, they're very intuitive. They know when something's the same, but just dressed up differently. So I think for a while we ended down a strategy that probably wasn't, wasn't the best, but we learned a lot. On top of that, what we ended up learning very quickly, which led us to kind of an evolution, because for us, um, the evolution is that we ended up on mobile. We started on Facebook. We're probably the only Facebook gaming company to really successfully move to mobile. Um, we ended up realizing very early on because our games weren't as quote unquote viral. So it wasn't so easy to get your friends or your mom to play Kingdoms of Camelot is that we realized very quickly that we could buy traffic and it was very cheap because a lot of people weren't doing that. And so we would buy the traffic. We got really good at UA, which is user acquisition. And it's really, it's, it's much easier to do user acquisition when the markets are growing because you can, you can kind of get things for very cheap, <laughs> if you will, inexpensively and really grow. Um, and that's really where you see a lot of these apps or these games or any types of things, just like, you're like, how do they massively grow? I think part of it is the platform is growing and when you have growing platforms, it rises, it helps all boats rise, but we got really good at it. So good that when Facebook said, Hey, we're going to enact a 30% tax on developers. We knew very quickly it would do some great damage to our business. So we rallied the whole company around how can we expand past Facebook. And obviously mobile was there. And, um, by this time our organization had grown to probably about 400 people. Wow. We had about three offices. It was actually quite difficult to get a lot of focus, to be honest. So what we did is we parachuted the co-founder into China and we said, Mike, you need to build a mobile team and you need to build the mobile version of kingdoms of Camelot. And I think 
um, that focus of sending them out there was super helpful. Um, he was able to build a team and build the game. And by 2012, we were the top grossing app in the app store. And so that meant it made more money than any in, than Facebook, Pandora, it was the top. And that really was the first time that an in-app purchase game was sitting there and really ushered in in in-app purchasing. So I do think the third kind of fundamental, um, kind of uniqueness, uh, innovation that we really did bring to the West was the business model of games. Um, just for folks who aren't familiar with games, uh, it's traditionally been on console and you can, you usually buy this game to play on your Xbox and it's shrink wrapped in plastic. But once you open up that, you cannot return it. Um, so you pay your 40 bucks up front and that's what you pay for, whether or not you like it or don't like it. It's very much like going to the movies and not being able, like you don't like the movie, they're never going to give your money back and you've just wasted two hours of your life. We liken our games a little bit closer to TV and how TV is made and a little thought about our monetization model is a little bit different. We do monetize directly our players so that we can build a direct relationship with them. But basically it's games as a service, um, as an in-app purchase. So we think about building a game with, um, kind of like seasons, episodes. We talk a lot about releasing content and kind of what that looks like. What's the content roadmap because it's going to be lasting for in perpetuity. So our kingdoms of Camelot franchise is still making money and being played today. (laughs) That's from 2009. So -hmm. it's pretty amazing kind of some of the longevity of franchises and these games that you can make. And that's, um, that's kind of what we, we did in terms of being able to kind of really kind of push things forward. So now we have a whole new kind of business model of in-app purchases. Now, instead of every game making $40, um, you could capture such a wider audience. There's some audiences, uh, some people, some players in your audience who want to pay a lot more money. And there's some who will want to pay less money and you get to capture those kind of tail ends uh, of things. And the greatest thing for me, uh, what got me really is, excited being a product designer on the background from my training is that I really love the idea that I could co-create the game with a player that players can continue to make suggestions and you can the game was just never done um, which was something that I thought was just super fascinating and as a result you have a lot of data now you could see how players react to things um, and that's, that's super exciting. It's super different for the gaming industry before there used to be religious fights on a console game. What is fun? No, this is more fun. That's more fun. And it's only like five people, but we used to say, look, now we can see fun. You know, if mm. we assume that if, you know, people don't return to your game, we used retention as, as the metric to say how fun is a game? Cause we assume that if people don't come back, maybe they didn't find your game fun enough, right? Barring any technical difficulties and all of that. Right. Um, so there, so that's kind of what we would kind of talk about a lot and kind of how we pushed a lot of things forward. Mm, I see. So after, you know, after you, you did kingdoms of Camelot, um, and you got it on mobile and it did really, really well, what happened next? Yeah, sure. So, uh, things changed really fast and same with the mobile industry. Um, what would happen in terms of the mobile industry is, um, things consolidated really quickly. It became super expensive to buy traffic, which is what we kind of grew very quickly early on. 
Um, and so what we started finding was how, which almost any business will look towards is how do you reduce your cost of acquiring a customer? Um, once you figure out your lifetime value of the customer, then you can go and figure out, okay, so what, how much can you reduce that cost of acquiring the customer? So, um, we spent a lot of time and we realized quickly with where the mobile space was changing and where it kind of is today, actually, I'd say there's not much movement is that you cannot grow just by buying traffic. You know, the top 10 have been the top 10 for a really long time. It's very hard to break into that. You could try to spend boatloads of money, which some companies have, have done and try to get push and buy traffic all the way to the top. Um, but it's still not enough. Right now, even in today's space, we learned really quickly that um, it was much better to get featured by Apple or Google. So we had a dedicated BD team to really kind of make sure that um, the relationships were really good with both of those companies. On top of that, what we also um, kind of found a little bit of our forte in and what it is today is, you know, we say, hey, we build like triple A quality games on your mobile phone is that we started partnering with Hollywood a lot. We had some of the best partnerships with Hollywood and that really lended to a allowing for brand recognition so we can reduce the cost of customer acquisition. Secondly, it also de-risked a lot of things. So for example, our top game right now, which is called Marvel Contest of Champions, is a fighting game between Marvel characters. It's a lot like Street Fighter, but using Marvel characters. Um, the, the second thing it affords you is if you choose the right IP partner is you can have a lot of great access to wonderful characters as well as storyline um, as well. You know, so it, it, it kind of opens up the whole, this whole world where you don't you don't run the risk of having to create your own IP in some ways and you can really kind of work together. Um, what's been very fascinating with our Marvel um, relationship, which has been really good, is Usually the way IP works is uh, they make a movie like Marvel and then the IP moves into kind of like um, TV or if possible and then toys and maybe onto your cereal. And then if you're really lucky, it, it, you create a game. And really for us, I think what we found a couple of things is a, we also, what's what's been fascinating around licensed partners getting into mobile games is now the fan can engage with the, the IP 24-7. We are in the most intimate parts of the player's life. We're on their mobile phone and they're playing with it. It's, it's like it's in your pocket. So for the IP, fans can, can interact with them at any given time. At the same time, this is the first time for us that I've seen something flip, you know, if we're lucky, it gets to a game. But when Marvel wanted to come out with a new character, they actually went to our Vancouver studio and asked them to design and create a whole new character for the Marvel universe. And yeah, wow. they did it. Yeah, they did it for Contest of Champions. And um, her name is Guillotine. Um, I'm so proud it was a, a <laughs> it's a woman. Um, and there's, there's a comic book out about her as well. So now it went all the way to, you know, the comic books. So it's, it's kind of really fascinating where the IP um, is getting its inspiration and how they're partnering together with games. Um, instead of being kind of an afterthought, they're now like much more of a forethought and maybe even kind of pushing and creating IP. And you see that um, kind of in the world of, um, I think World of Warcraft came out with the movie. 
Um, and there's some bigger IPs that are just gaming IP that started as a game that are going into movies or to books or the other way. So it's really fascinating. Mm, yeah, that's really interesting. So you've brought us to the end of this, like kind of the like um, the end of your your story. So so where like did you did, was Kabam sold or or that's or, right. Yeah. Yeah. So Kabam was sold to a South Korean gaming company called Netmarvel. Netmarvel wanted um, a portion. They basically wanted Marvel um, contest of champions. That was something that was extremely prof- profitable if you removed all kind of the costs together. Um, and just focused on the people that worked on that. So we did something a bit unique. We kind of broke up the company, if you will, and sold the piece of the company. So they bought the the brand Kabam. They bought the Vancouver studio as well as anything that supported Marvel. And they're coming out with Transformers. So definitely if you're a Transformers fan, you definitely want to play that. Um, yeah, I'll just do a little plug. And then the other part of the company was more central services. We also had our LA studio. And that was bought by Fox Next. Um, that was a very good kind of merging of the two, mainly because they've been working on our Avatar IP, which is obviously owned by Fox. So, um, so that's kind of how, and this kind of recently happened in February of this year. Um, so that's been kind of uh, where where it's at in terms of uh, some of its new owners. And what's super exciting is Netmarvel does uh, a, another game called Marvel Future Fight. So now they kind of get to own all of the Marvel fighting space. Um, and then as well as with Fox, because they do own Avatar, um, it's it's been really kind of nice. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah, wow. That's so cool. So are you st- do you still actively work in Kabam? Or uh, what's, yeah, what's next? Yeah. So me and the founders uh, did not need to stay at Kabam. Uh, so... I've ended up going to Australia for a while. I know we had met uh, for about um, five weeks working with uh, Girl Geek Academy to get more kind of women entrepreneurs, um, kind of helping them start startups. Um, I'm very interested in obviously making impact. And I always talk about, hey, if, if anything that I've learned, we've learned in our last 10 years of mistakes, and if anybody wants to learn from them, I'm more than happy to share them. Um, so yeah, I've been definitely, uh, looking to give back to the entrepreneur communities, um, and even more particularly, uh, given the lack of women in entrepreneurship, particularly tech entrepreneurship, um, I've been definitely looking to make an impact there as well. Mm, Yeah, no, that's amazing. So, um, we have to work towards wrapping up, but this is a really, really fascinating story. So I've got a ton of questions and I was taking notes (laughs) along the way. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So incredible journey uh a lot of uh twists and turns along the way uh when you guys started did you did you ever anticipate uh that you would you would build something of of that size so we never anticipated but it was certainly our goal that's for sure like when i look back i think um we were certainly aligned around certain goals and um a lot of people ask me what's what's a book i recommend and i always recommend this book it's called the founder's dilemma by noam wasserman if you're a founder and it goes through um he basically looks at a lot of startups and he like kind of captures the founder's dilemmas at each point there's a lot of dilemmas that founders have to go through and one of them was that that what he's known for in capturing this dilemma is do you want to be king or do you want to be rich 
neither is bad, but if you optimize for both, you're never going to reach any of them. So being rich is basically um, companies that tend to raise a ton of capital so that they can capture the market. They're much more interested in bringing the very best talent on on board, which obviously requires capital. Um, And they're interested in growing the pie as big as possible. Um, Being king tends to remain a bit, uh, they want to be more control oriented. They don't really let as many people on the board. Um, They have a certain vision that really needs to stick to it. Um, And you have examples of both of these companies, but in the book, it they definitely capture and I felt like it captured us so well. And I, my, my biggest recommendation for co-founders is to be on the same team, like same page on whether you want to be rich or do you want to be king? We ended up in one camp where we raised a lot of money so that we could get the very best talent so that we can grow the pie as big as possible for as many people to share. And that was, that was definitely all of our actions were lockstep in that. If you were to me, ask me that like 10 years ago, I'm not too sure if I would have been able to tell you that. But now looking back, I'm like, wow, every single, like many of the steps that were chosen, it was always a push to keep on growing, to return the capital, to expand our market share and never letting our foot off the gas. Yeah, I see. And were you head of product, essentially? Uh, so at one point I was, I was doing, uh, I was head of a game for a GM for a very short time in the beginning, I was definitely head of product. And then we brought on a product manager. Again, I've worn many hats. I've been mainly mostly in the design side, ran a game game team for, for a bit, and then ran, ran HR and bobbed in and out of corporate services from chief of staff to many things. Yeah, wow. <laughs> many, awesome. many hats. I think that's a bit of a job of founder in many ways um, to do what's needed um, for the company to grow. Mm. So what I'm curious around from your product design experience is uh, you, you you had no background in, in developing games. How did you work out, like besides the data piece, like was it always the data that, that, that kind of – because sure. that's a bit of an art form, right, like developing a great game. Yeah, so I think it's a little bit of both. Um, I think that what we heavily leaned on was not just that passion of – a few people in our company who just like loved games and said, Hey, this is what I feel a great game is. But I think what was actually most important was we, we were not from the gaming space and that became our advantage because we were able to be okay with many things, particularly the very first thing is we were very service oriented. So that is an incredible mindset. We all came from the web world and that mindset of the web world is very much that things are never done. Right. Like you're probably always installing patches. Things are never done. Um, You fix bugs. Right. Uh, And it's most important to ship because, you know, it's never going to be done. I worked in a company called AOL and um, they were having a hard time trying to shift from like, okay, we need to have everything on the CD and it's done. So everything had to be perfect. But the biggest problem with that is you never know if you're polishing a turd. That's what I always say. You're like, you could just be sitting there and you could be polishing. So you kind of have to release things, um, if you will. Um, So for us, what we did is we really kind of looked at um, people who are very passionate about games as well as um, kind of our service backgrounds. Now, I will say that there is a bit of luck involved. We have a very low success rate. Like our hit rate is on average, like decent, it's like 10%, right? But that's like industry average uh, when it comes to games. So it's not it's not that every single game you put out there is going to be a hit. 
That's for sure. We've had a lot of failures along the way. <laughs> um, even after we created our first hit, we thought we could keep doing it. And that's not necessarily true. So I, I don't want to sound cavalier at all in terms of like, oh yeah, we, we, we knew every single secret formula and making games is super easy. It's not, it's one of the hardest pieces of entertainment there is. And uh, for the people that choose to go into it on those who it's their calling, it's, it's an amazing, amazing calling. You get, especially mobile gaming, you get to be with people 24 seven in the most intimate times of their lives. And you get to impact um, how they view culture, how they, and you get to help create relationships with people that they've never had before. You never would have known while having fun. Amazing. All this stuff all together. <laughs> yeah. It's very relaxing, isn't it? Gaming, right? Uh, oh no, it's not. <laughs> You're kidding me. <laughs> definitely yeah. not the industry. The industry is not relaxing. It's, it's definitely a lot of work. Very intense, very intense. But yeah, some games are, when you play them, you should either feel relaxed or some people like to play the type of games that help them achieve. There's, there's many different motives. Um, but people, I, I always say this, there's many people who do come up to me and say, I'm so sorry, Holly, I just don't like video games. And I always tell them, I say, it's not because you don't like video games. It's just because you haven't had a game made for you yet. And like, I'm, I'm just, how could people not like games? That's how humans learn. Right. I mean, that's just how we are. So it does speak to a bit of like the lack of diversity, honestly, in the gaming industry, a lack of diverse voices, male, female, um, different countries, cultural, all those types of things. Um, I just, I, I just refuse to believe that people don't like video games. I just don't think gaming's, they, they, they haven't had a game made for them. Mm, yeah. I tend to agree. Like, one thing I, I actually look at when 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 um hiring people is is are they a gamer or do they play games because if they are a gamer they they have really good problem solving skills. Oh, that's interesting. And I think when you say and ask whether or not they're a gamer, I, I will say that phrase is uh, to a certain portion of types of games and those those types they do set up like achievements and quests and you build a lot of things that are closer to kind of the games we've built. But there's definitely, you're, you're absolutely right. Like I think playing games, like you have to have that flow. Like that's the thing is game designers need to get you into that flow of, you know, challenge yet also fun in terms of relaxing and engaging, right? Like too challenging, they're going to give it up. Um, not challenging enough, they'll give it up. <laughs> mm, but yeah. you're exactly right. Like problem solving is happens even when you're a gamer or you're just somebody who plays games. I get that a lot. I'm like, oh, I don't play. I'm not a gamer. And I'm like, yeah, but how come your Candy Crush says you're at level 540? You're like, oh, yeah, I just played it. Like, 540? You must spend a ton of time on there. And they're like, oh, yeah, I just play games, but I'm not a gamer. But you're absolutely right. Like solving problems is you still need that challenge mm, for sure. 100%. So, Look, um, we have to work towards wrapping up, Holly, but uh, yeah. two last questions. One, um, just kind of maybe just uh, some words of wisdom, parting wisdom for our audience that you'd like to, to finish off on. And then the, the last question is best place people can go to uh, find out more about yourself and your work. <laughs> that is such a lofty thing. <laughs> words <laughs> of wisdom, parting words. Uh, <laughs> I think uh, one of the most important things is if you're really thinking about entrepreneurship, the best thing to do is to just go ahead and move forward and just honestly do it. Um, I liken 
I, you could talk about it. You could read a lot of books about it and it's a very scary thing. Um, but I liken it to riding a bike. You just kind of have to get on and do it, um, so that you can learn. And that's what the learning is all about. And, um, if you want to find more about me, you could definitely, uh, follow me on Twitter. My handle is Holly H O L L Y H Lou. So it's Holly H Lou H O L L Y H L I U. So feel free to follow me on Twitter. Um, and you can DM me. Awesome. All right. Well, look, thank you so much for your time, Holly. This is an awesome conversation. I really appreciate it. All right. Thanks a lot, Nathan. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed this interview. As you might already know, our mission at Founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content, either start or grow their business, which is exactly why we're partnering with world-class founders such as Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills such as negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free exclusive trainings, please go to founder.com forward slash free. These are 100%. We go super in depth on teaching a particular topic, and I know that you're going to love them if you enjoy this podcast. So just go to founder.com forward slash free. All right, guys, I'll see you in the next episode.